Hello! Welcome to the Systemic Interventions episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a big, big week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And most excitingly, we have the best person in the world, Stacey Marie Ishmael. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I think it's true. Um, Stacey Marie, you um, you and I go way back. We're we're OG financial bloggers. When you're at the FT, and I was, I can't even remember where I was. Probably Rubini Global Economics or something like that. Um, you went on to create the world's best ever website, which was called FT Tilt. RIP. It was amazing. It was, it was this great way of, of covering emerging markets. And then now you're in Texas. Tell me what you're up to these days. I am the editorial director of the Texas Tribune. We are a rigorously nonpartisan um, media organization with a focus on issues for and about Texans. So I, I'm very excited about this because it gives me another excuse to get back to Austin and um if ever any of us get on planes again if we ever get on planes again but so yeah congratulations on the new job which you've had for how long now I started in March um I started right wow. before the <laughs> stay-at-home order in Austin <laughs> so I have not met half the people on my team in person I mean given given that yeah how how key the eating of vast amounts of restaurant food in general and like tacos and barbecue in particular is to your job. It's You've got a lot of catching up to do. There is. I mean, I remember this was like never tweet things into the universe. A couple of days, like when I landed, I had been asking people like, what are the best tacos I should eat? Like, where's the best breakfast taco? What are the best bike shops? I had one breakfast taco <laughs> before everything <laughs> shut down. And I'm just really sad about it. <laughs> so we are going to talk about the May jobs report, which was a shocker. We are going to talk about the Black Lives Matter protests. We are going to talk about reparations. We are going to talk about corporate donations. We are going to talk about how liberalism and progressive policies manifests itself in various different types of companies. We have a packed episode for you this week and i hope you stay tuned for the slate plus because there's great stuff in that so all of that is coming up on slate money hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So the big finance and economics news of the week is definitely this absolute bombshell of an employment report, which did the exact opposite of what everyone thought it would do. And apparently two and a half million jobs were created in May, in the middle of a lockdown. How we managed that, I have no idea. The unemployment rate fell to 13.3%. Stacy, you are in Texas. Texas was early on the reopening bandwagon. Like, can you even conceptualize how this is possible? 
I admit I was genuinely mystified this morning when I, <laughs> when I saw the the report from the Department of Labor. And there was one caveat in there that I thought was um, super interesting, which is around, you know, I think it was that the unemployment rate would be three percentage points higher if the data had been accurate and that some of the jobs that were classified as like layoffs were furloughs and furloughs were absenteeisms. And so there is some messiness in this in the way that there has there, always There is, been. but I need to jump in and just say that was true last month too. Oh, for sure. So, so, so what it, we're like talking about here... It's consistently yeah. wrong in the same direction. <laughs> what, what we're talking about here is people who were absent from work for quote-unquote other reasons. Other reasons, exactly. And and most economists, pretty much all economists, would agree that those people should be classed as being temporarily furloughed and should be added to the unemployment figures. They weren't for various statistical reasons, which we can either agree or disagree with. But as you say, um, that was true in April. That was true in May. The unemployment rate fell enormously either way, if yeah. you include it or if you don't include it. I mean, yeah, a lot of people went I back baffling. to work. I think it's not it's not as complicated as we need to make it. Although I did see, of course, on Twitter speculation of Trump rigging the numbers. I feel <laughs> I feel actually pretty confident that that is not correct. And there no, was like, it's, no conspiracy, of course. There's no conspiracy. No, there's I'm no old enough to I'm old enough to remember October 2012 when Jack <laughs> Welch accused Obama of right. rigging the numbers, and right. it wasn't uh, true then, and it's not true now. It's not true so, now. Yeah. so what I'm and saying I, is, I think people went back to work. <laughs> they were for, in a lot of cases, forced back to work because you know um, states wanted to get back open as fast as they can, and 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 that's what happened. People went back. That's my theory. Well, I think one thing that's interesting, <laughs> if you kind of look into the data, like the about 40 percent of it was part time labor which really isn't overly surprising, kind of thinking about the people who are going to be hired back as companies kind of try to figure out the labor that they're actually going to need moving forward. It was also interesting to look a little bit into demographics, I would yeah, say. Yeah, particularly you know, the African-American rate. Yes, because it didn't. It didn't, didn't move. No, it didn't move. No. It went up. The, 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 the unemployment for African-Americans went up. To 16.8%. Yeah, 16. Um, while everyone else, actually, the Asian unemployment rate went up as well, but right. the overall unemployment rate went down. So, given the um, context we're in, we should we should definitely talk about that. Interestingly, this is the first unemployment report ever, at least that I can remember, where the African American unemployment rate was not the highest. The Hispanic and Latino unemployment rate is now seventeen point six percent. It's even higher than the Black unemployment rate. But the one big caveat we need to apply to all of this is this is a survey of absolutely extreme and unprecedented economic conditions. And the kind of surveying and polling and modeling that you do to create these numbers was never designed to capture this kind of economic condition with great accuracy. So there's a huge amount of like error bars. The error bars on all of these numbers are much bigger than they normally would be. Uh, yeah, although I, I would say, though, that it is, it's not insignificant, though. I mean, it's oh, not Oh, it's insi definitely significant. Right. 100% like, significant. Because it does show that, I mean, hopefully, even though the levels are still horrible, the direction seems less negative than we thought it was going to be. And I think that that's good. I mean, I think it indicates that perhaps 
we will be able to recover slightly faster than we would have thought a few weeks ago. Maybe not as fast as we thought two months ago, but that's still positive. So the Paul the Paul Krugman response to that when he was on Twitter after the report came out is basically this is actually bad news because the way that we recover more quickly is through the government really throwing um, the kitchen sink at trying to the German model at, at trying to get the economy going again, and if it looks like the economy is getting better on its own, then that means the government isn't going to do anything. And if the government doesn't do anything, that's bad. That's ex- I was just going to say that I think this is going to be really bad. We already had President Trump tweeting about the great jobs numbers. Um, so this and we already have Republicans and, and conservatives saying, you know, we don't want to do the $600 extra benefits once they expire in July. We're done with that. They want to push people back to work. And so now they have this great, quote unquote, great news, but it's not great news. It's what, 13, what is it, 13.3% unemployment. That's wildly high. Like, you can't, this is good issue. And it's news, 20% sort of. if you look at the U6, the broad measure yeah. of people who are wanting work. And then yeah. you think about the African-American rate not having budged at all, and you pull out all the fiscal stimulus, and, and you have a real explosion of inequality in this country, I think. It's bad news. I mean, if we want to compound the bad news, one of the other things that we are about to start to get early indicators on is what was the effect of increased reopening on the rates of transmission and and hospitalizations, right? And if if there is indeed the second wave, as folks have been describing it, what is that going to mean for all the places that have just reopened? Is everyone going to close? What does it mean right now that you have curfews, which is definitely hampering economic activity? Um, You have restricted public transit. People can't get to work essential workers being arrested if they try to get home. I think there's like all different kinds of things that are affecting not just the suitability of the surveys to capture this, but just like the general understanding of the picture of how business and employers are being affected by what's going on right now. One of the ways that people described this report was consider a restaurant which laid everyone off in March when the pandemic hit and then come May sort of reopened in a very, very stripped down way for like takeout only and hired back one third of its workers. That's effectively what the um, figures are showing, that roughly one third of the people who lost their jobs in the April report managed to get them back in the May report. It's not good. So Stacey, as you say, this whole curfew situation just makes it worse. That hypothetical restaurant wouldn't be allowed to serve anything in the middle of a curfew. One of my um, favorite factoids about this present level of complete insanity is New York City has not had a curfew since 1943 in the middle of the Second World War. And even then, it was basically just half of Harlem. Right now, it's the entire city and it's going on for a week. We've really been through, I mean, just to pull back a little, like at first there was this pandemic and it was like, everyone needs to stay home. Everyone stay home, go nowhere. Then there was this like panic, like, okay, we need to open back up. Everyone get out, go, go back to doing normal stuff. And now it's like, no, no, never mind. Curfew, go, go back home. It's like, what do you want from us? (laughs) (laughs) Help. Yeah. I mean, and and I think, you know, what we're seeing in these jobs numbers does not necessarily indicate that we're going to see that same every month. And, And I think that Stacey, I also think you're right that 
we don't know what the impact is going to be of what we're seeing now, and it likely won't be good. Um, I, I think that that is definitely true. I, I, you know, though, just in general, I'd say that the idea that because we're at this point means that we won't get any more government help moving forward and that the Republicans will be able to say, oh, no, we're done. I, I'm, I don't really think that I agree with that just because you still have levels that are so much higher than anything we've seen in decades and decades and decades. This is an election year. I still think you will get a lot of angry rhetoric coming out of Republicans, but I think at the end of the day, they still will do something. So, Stacey Marie, I want to put that question to you uh, as someone who has looked at probably more elections than anyone else around these parts in many, many different countries around the world. When it comes to elections, what is more important, the unemployment rate or the change in the unemployment rate? If the unemployment rate is high and going down, is that good for the incumbent or bad for the incumbent? The way that I would nuance that is I would say who is most directly affected by the unemployment rates and those do those people have savings, right? Like it's it's your your qualitative understanding of your ability to live your life. And there are circumstances, including in this data in U6, where some of the people who have been affected got severance pay. Some of the people who have been affected, you know, were able to move to part-time. They are not a single earner household. And interestingly, in the U.S., a lot of the people who are affected the most are also effectively disenfranchised and, you know, may not necessarily be able to represent how they are feeling economically at the ballot box for a host of reasons, which would take an entire other podcast to discuss. And so in I think in general, the real unemployment rate really matters. I also think in the U.S., particularly in the context of the upcoming presidential elections, that the effect of the real unemployment rate might not not be matched by someone's ability to cast their vote as to how they feel about it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So that is the perfect segue to um, Black Lives Matter and the um, way that the U.S. economy is rigged against black and brown folks, um, which is a large part, but of course not even the main part of the reason why there have been so many protests across the country. Stacey, tell us, we don't have an entire podcast about this, but we do have an entire segment if you want it. So let's try and give us the the big picture background of what has been going on with the economics of African-Americans and why is it not getting any better? I'm just going to take a deep breath. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The protests currently are not only about the economics of African-Americans, but they are certainly representative of widespread and profound dissatisfaction with the inequality of opportunity that an entire segment of the population is currently facing. 
And whether you think about the historic wealth patterns of African-American households over time, there was a stat that I saw, maybe it was yesterday, that it would take, you know, your average white household has the wealth of nine to 11 African-American households combined. And that's with the same income. That's with the same income, that's a, yes. A middle class, that's a middle-class household with like $65,000 annual income. Right. Has like seven or eight times as much wealth as an African-American household with the same income. As expressed through the levels of home ownership and the value of that home, as expressed through levels of access to credit and means of borrowing, right? As expressed through generational wealth transfers, like the, the African-American population on all economic metrics can be considered fairly to be significantly disadvantaged. And you compound that by, as we are seeing right now, a system in which those disadvantages intersect in extremely fraught ways with policing and the state, right? That if you are in a position in which your options for employment or, or unemployment, as the case may be, or the way that you are treated in school and the likelihood of you graduating successfully without having been suspended at between like five and 10 times the rate of a non-Black student. Like, and the fact that in schools you have an in- increasing police presence, you know, it, it, is, it is genuinely systemic, the ways in which economic opportunity is limited for a lot of folks in, in this population. Yeah, one stat that really, um, I think I read it before in, in Mirsa Bararan's book a few years ago, um, when um, enslaved people were emancipated, uh, black people owned about 0.5% of all the wealth in the United States, which makes sense. Um, but now today, and I like emailed her to double check, uh, black people own about 1.1% of all the wealth in the United States. So several hundred years after the end of slavery. <laughs> uh, yeah, it ha- it just ticked up slightly. I mean, it's just absolutely shocking. What, one of the shameful. lessons of that book is that weirdly, economically speaking, things just got in weird ways worse after the end of slavery once all of the Jim Crow institutions started coming in. The, like, the whole 40 acres and a mule thing lasted, what, like three years before it all got like ripped back and... Um, African-Americans were just not allowed to buy property, were not allowed to own land, were systematically excluded from all of the jobs that paid well. And the echoes of that throughout history are unbelievably strong. And one of the things you see across the world is that if certain segments of the population, whether they're demographic or geographic, have historically underperformed for whatever reasons, but it's usually tribal or racial in some way, um, those things persist for centuries. Like the difference in income and wealth between Southern Italy and Northern Italy, for instance, has persisted for centuries, even though women to have, you know, they all speak the same language, they can move freely back and forth, but it's still there. It's, It's really, really hard to eradicate this kind of thing, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't and we shouldn't try. So I'd love to ask Stacey Marie about this. It's like, what is the public policy solution to this problem? (laughs) One of the things I believe very strongly is that it's difficult to have a policy conversation unless we agree on the reality of the diagnosis. And 
you know, the reality of the diagnosis is that this thing exists, this disparity exists, these substantial gaps in median net worth, these substantial gaps in educational outcomes. The fact that you can be a Black professional with a college degree and your lifetime earnings are lower than a white person with only a high school education. Like, I, I feel that from a policy perspective, we have to start with, do we accept these as facts? If yes, here's how we go forward. And I accept these as facts. I'm a big fan of data and analysis. Um, and I think there are specific interventions, whether at the point of no longer considering policies that were designed to redress some of these disparities, particularly in education, um, namely affirmative action, for example, are somehow a question of um, a system that is not meritocratic, but in the wrong direction and are more like this is a policy intervention with very specific goals in order to address historical wrongs, right? Or the fact of how Black households have access to wealth through home ownership and the decades-long system of redlining is something that is ripe for a policy intervention. The Community Reinvestment Act is constantly on the verge of not being a thing, being a thing, being gutted in some different way. Um, the fact that we are having discussions around, you know, I think it was two years ago when ProPublica was doing reporting on Facebook allowing digital redlining because it was allowing through its advertising people who were identified by those algorithms as Black or Hispanic to be targeted with, you know, really predatory lending, really predatory and exclusionary job ads. That is also something where there is an ability to have a policy intervention. I don't think there is a single, there is one single thing that any particular administration or mayor or governor can do because this is a systemic problem and you have to treat systemic problems with systemic interventions. But I do think the conversation around the need for these interventions is one that has been sort of muddied by making it a question of like, oh, are you saying that everything is racist? And it's like, yes, and, <laughs> you know, like the policies, the effects of these policies are disparate racial outcomes. And so that is how we have to understand what we are talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to really go back to the roots. I mean, one reason there's such a wide wealth gap is because there was an intentional policy in the United States during the New Deal that purposefully excluded Black people. White people were given opportunities. They were given, what, billions, trillions of dollars in support to go buy houses and get mortgages that were backed, you know, with the full faith and credit of the United States. And Black people didn't get any of that. And we're still dealing with that right now. Like, in the 60s, there was, you know, civil rights, there was protests, and there was a few laws passed to sort of say, like, well, going forward, we won't, we won't do that anymore. But there was no redress going backwards. So all that wealth had been built, and that purposeful exclusion kind of continues forward. And there needs to be like a real um, sort of like a reckoning in, in the United States at the federal level, at the policy level, at the agency level, in all these ways that Black people were purposely prevented from building wealth for decades and decades and decades, really centuries. And if you don't do that and fix those programs and go back and give African-American people what white people were given a long time ago, it doesn't get fixed. I mean, I was thinking the other day around, you know, we've had a fresh round of discussions on the, the, the utility and necessity of the postal service. Right. And the Postal Service is an excellent example of an 
a government agency that has also historically been a path for Black people into like the professional class or the middle class, and that the gutting of the pers- of the postal service disproportionately ex- affects Black households. And it's the kind of thing where on the front end, you're like, oh no, we're having a discussion about what, it, you know, should this be a private sector company? And actually, I'm like, actually what you're having a conversation about is the infrastructure that supports what limited amounts of Black wealth there is in the United States being you know, systematically defunded in ways that are not always visible. And and going back from, you know, frankly, even before the Declaration of Independence, you know, like moving on, you know, at every single stage, the only way that America did anything was basically by saying, okay, well, we will sacrifice African-Americans in order to get Southern votes. Like this is something that you just, in American history, just see over and over and over. And And to me, this is like goes into discussions then of reparations, because it does seem like, how do you undo 400 years by saying, okay, we're going to tweak things here and there? Like, it doesn't seem possible without saying, no, look, this country was built on unpaid labor. That's, you know, incurred a lot of interest over the years. It should be paid out. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it does, still doesn't undo everything. Obviously, money can't undo all you harms, know, a lot of this. But, but it certainly makes those harms easier to bear. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a little bit more about reparations, since this seems to be the the obvious endpoint. Um, there are two questions I have about reparations. One is that is it possible to for, for those of us who live in like urban centers um, with lots of woke protesters coming around for us to massively overestimate the support for any kind of reparations at all, and two assuming that there is support for reparations, where do you start? And what do they look like? That was, of course, famously the question that was kind of dodged by Tanahasi Coates in his big case for reparations article. He was like, here's the case for reparations, and then let's just leave it to the policy wonks to work out how to do it, which is um, fine. But there were some interesting ideas. Um, if you look at the democratic debates, there were some interesting ideas about where you might start with that kind of a thing. And I'd be interested, uh, Stacey, in what you thought of the kind of things that Kamal Harris and others were putting forwards. Yeah. So um, I was just double checking. So H.R. 40, right? That's the bill that was introduced on the the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African-Americans Act. Um, sponsored by a Texas rep, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. And I think that studying is the correct and wise starting point, because I think that what you are looking at, there are different ways of tackling this. You could start from, and this is one of, you know, one of the more popular in as much as any of these things are popular proposals, looking at land theft. I believe that it was the New Yorker that had a series a little while ago about how 
African-American families were like systematically removed from the family land that they had owned or earned or tilled and how that has really negatively affected the ability to pass on and do any kind of generational wealth transfer. And it's something where you have, you have receipts, right? Like there's paper trails, there's deeds, there's history, there's records, there's ways of saying we have very clear documentation that demonstrates that the rightful owners of this land is, is this household or this collection of households. And I think that what people often worry about with reparations uh, is that, oh, you know, you're just like giving money to everyone. I mean, like one, yes. And two, you are giving money to everyone on the basis, to your point, Anna, of like historical wrongdoing and that you are trying to address and correct, right? So it's it's an intervention for past harm and not sort of a reward for existing. And so I'm a big fan of proposals that start with what are clear and clearly documented examples that lend themselves to fairly swift, as much as any of these things are ever swift, repair. I like the idea. I um I again spoke to Marissa because she tweeted something like the policy solution we need to do is reparations. So I called her and said like, what do you what kind what does that look like? So she said was talking about how the creation of the FHA and how white people got you know um, mortgages backed by the United States or um, the Homestead Act. You know, white people got just like free land back in the day. And she said maybe we can do like an equivalent policy now where like African-American people um, get free land essentially um, are given grants of, of housing and houses and made a real effort to like give property back to people. Um, she also mentioned um, like the Department of Education could work on student loan forgiveness, especially at um, historic black colleges and universities and things like that, just sort of like targeted ways to um, allow more wealth creation, essentially, um, instead of just like sending someone a check, maybe like giving people the opportunity to have a house or have a free college education that could, you know, really spur a lot of uh, wealth creation and undo some damage. The land and housing aspect of this is is the through line here, and it makes perfect sense because, as we talked about, the a, lo- a lot of the wealth and income disparities come back to land and housing disparities that like underlies a lot of it, and it's absolutely clear, historically speaking, where those what the structurally racist institutions were that created those disparities in the first place. Um, and as we had Conan Doherty on this year talking about his housing book, there is an incredibly massive demand in the economy as a whole, just as a macroeconomic question, for more housing and especially more affordable housing and housing for you know the lower middle classes in particular, and who don't really vote in the same numbers that the upper middle classes do, and so they, they tend to be more ignored during elections, but this housing is desperately needed. And it seems that just from a fiscal policy point of view, it would make a huge amount of sense to create a huge amount of housing and give it to people who were deprived of it in the first go round. I feel like this is the second time this week I've been thinking about the mortgage interest deduction for someone who doesn't own a house. Um, But it's like even the the current tax code is set up to reward 
people who own assets that other folks largely have been disenfranchised from the ability to access. And it's just like, there are so many places and so many policies that people are like, yeah, obviously. You're like, no, (laughs) there's no reason that this is obvious. There's lots of reasons actually why it's non-obvious. And that's what I really, like, I would just love for the conversation to get down to the brass tacks of like, here are clear examples of the ways that we are not just introducing, but reinforcing disparities and that we take those things for granted. Although, can I give, you know, probably the first and last time I'll ever give Trump credit for anything, he did more or less abolish the mortgage interest deduction. It exists on paper, but the number of people who has substantially it reduced. Has um, but the you know the the compounding effect of having had that for so long, when you didn't have access to that if you were a renter, and the reason that you were a renter was because you were priced out of your neighborhood in Oakland, there where you had previously owned a house and no longer could afford to, is just like insult to injury. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's have a numbers round, shall we? <laughs> we, we, should, we should throw some Just numbers at each light. other. Keep, keep, it, keep, keep it light. Stacey, I'm sure you have an upbeat number, which you will cheer us, up, cheer us all up. Um, so one of the, the big parts of uh, Governor Abbott, who is, of course, the governor of Texas, you know, his what he called his reopening metrics was this notion that by June 1st, which was, of course, four days ago at the point of recording, there would be up to 4,000 contact tracers in Texas focused on making sure that we are minimizing community spread, that we are understanding if there are particular areas where the, you know, the rate of infection might go up, encouraging people to self-quarantine, all of those good things. Um, But we only have (laughs) 2,900. And, you know, we're past June 1st. And I think that the reason that number stood out to me is 4,000 wasn't that high for in the first place for a state with the population of Texas. And contact tracing is very labor intensive to do correctly, aside from all of the challenging privacy considerations. And so for us to be, you know, five days into June and still down versus what was a very moderate benchmark, I think is another signal of the ways in which our attempts to manage a global pandemic with statewide interventions or state-level interventions has been really challenging. I think my number my number was going to be 20, which is like the number of allegedly fake dollars that sparked this entire wave of protests, but that was too depressing even for me. So I think I'm going to do only mildly depressing 
um, number, which is 21 million, which is the closest thing we have to an actual number of unemployed people. The One of the things that has really struck me over the past uh, couple months is that there has been this enormous range of people talking about how many people have lost their jobs over the course of this pandemic. And one of the things that people do is they add up weekly unemployment claims figures, which is a terrible thing to do. Do not do that. Um, <laughs> and the only thing we can really do is wait for the monthly employment report to come out and just take the number from that. It's it's uh, inaccurate and kind of dirty number in a bunch of ways, but it's the best thing we have. And so the new number that you can basically say, this is the number of unemployed people in America is now officially 20,985,000. So nice. that's that. So at least start with data. <laughs> start with good data. Good, good <laughs> in one sense, not good in every sense. But I have a very depressing number. So I feel like oh, I should Oh, what's your depressing number? number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. my number is six. So in Rio de Janeiro, the police killed an average of six people a day in April. And that is actually an over 40% increase from April last year. And this was at a time when actually overall crime was decreasing because more people were at home. Like the the numbers are just crazy when you, you know, it's just kind of another example. Like I think it was like almost 10,000 people in Rio have been killed by the police over the past decade. And over 75% of them are Afro-Brazilians who make up the majority of Brazil yet hold a teeny tiny percentage of, you know, executive positions and wealth. And so it's just, it's another example of a place where things are horrible. And also I have an incredibly horrible president. Uh, Brazil has only ever had white presidents. It's kind of amazing that even the leftists who, who get elected in Brazil, people like Dilma and Lula are still white. The amount of discrimination, I mean, the, the history of racism and the con in in Latin America and in Brazil especially is it's really truly awful. Emily. I had a lot of depressing numbers written down but the most cheerful one I have is 4 million dollars. And that is the amount of money Lego has donated. Um uh I'm not sure I didn't write down to what to causes um in light of uh the protests and all that and there it's also represents the amount of money they're not going to spend um marketing their police lego kits so they, they make like all kinds of adorable lego kits and some of them are like cute little police officers but there's nothing really that cute about police officers right now or maybe ever and um so anyway and and this was reported in a very confusing way so a lot of people initially thought lego was saying they weren't going to make the police officer kits anymore that is not what they said they're just not going to market them so much so everything is not awesome i guess <laughs> saw what you did there i mean <laughs> thank I, you, I, I see you what you did there i, see what you did there. I don't even have kids <laughs> and i see what you did there um i want to talk a little bit about this whole um trend of companies and individuals donating money to various causes um as these protests uh rage and like which causes it makes sense to donate money to and what we can what we think of this sort of latest wave of donations so i w i'm one of them i have to admit i was like i i feel like going out and marching around is is 
insufficient. Anything I do is insufficient, but I should at least give some money to someone. There was a brief period of um, everyone giving money to bail funds, but a lot of the bail funds are now coming out and saying, actually, we have basically the money we need. Uh, the, pro- the problem is, is more that the um, arrested individuals are not even appearing in court to get bail in the first place. Um, so where I wound up giving money was to a charity advocating for repeal of something called 50A in New York State, which is this law that um, effectively makes it very, very difficult to not only to prosecute police officers for crimes, but even to find out what kind of crimes they they had got up to in the past. Um, But Stacey, we have seen a huge number of companies, basically every major bank, all of the big sports teams, um, Lego, you name it, sort of like Facebook coming out with saying, oh, we're going to give like X million dollars to Y. What do you make of that? And what are the, and if there is a good place to give money to and a bad place to give money to, what, what, what's your view of all of this? Uh, I have to caveat this by saying that I am professionally not giving money to anyone <laughs> <laughs> because this is, this is the subject that I cover, but I have thought about the fact that it is very easy to make a marketing statement, right? It is, it is, you know, this is turning into, we are in, it's June, it's Pride Month, there are corporate rainbows everywhere. Every single year, companies are like, look, it's 50% off on a thing that sparkles, um, <laughs> or we will donate X percent of our revenue on this one product for five minutes to the Trevor Foundation, for example. And my concern with a lot of these statements about Black Lives Matter and we are going to donate money is what are you going to do the day after you have put out the statement, right? What are you going to do? The people who approve this in the first place were if you, whether it's a boardroom or a Zoom call, are statistically not representative in corporate America of the people who you are currently addressing. And One of the interesting things, mostly interesting to people in media, frankly, um, but one of the things that we've seen in the past week is company says a thing, employees are publicly saying yes. And also, (laughs) uh, you know, I think the phrase right now is like this you where, you know, people are just pulling up examples of how those same companies that are saying we have to do better on diversity four years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, issued a similar statement that's like, we have to do better on diversity. Like, at what point do we start to understand as people and as consumers that there is a really substantial difference between PR and strategic communications designed to ensure that you are not on the wrong side of customer purchase behavior and things that are actual change in a corporate context? I think this perhaps goes to, you know, a place where it's good when companies are doing anything, except if doing anything is a cover for not doing anything moving forward. And and I would also say if companies are just going to put out statements and do kind of fairly BS actions, and then on the other side of their mouth, try to defund programs that would actually help people, then they're not only not part of the solution, they are very much part of the problem. And then that just leads to the idea that ultimately a lot of this is a government issue and corporate executives can do some things, but they can only do so much. I mean, corporate executives have a lot of access right. to those government officials. No, I agree. And I, I actually wrote a piece on this where I just like, it's like if, if corporate executives really care about this, 
then they will use that power that they're currently using to give themselves massive salaries and to, you know, or an extra corporate jet. They will use that power to do things that actually their shareholders might push back on. They will use it to do things that some of their white shareholders might not be happy with. Like that would show me that they actually care and they're willing to actually do something because they do have a lot of power, whether it's good or bad, they do. But will they actually use that? If I had to bet on it, I probably would say no. I mean, Unless I think they're they're, they're using their actual power to lobby against the very policies that would actually help black people in this country. Like how many big corporations that sent out emails to me telling me how much they support Black Lives Matter, like how many oppose, like, say, raising the minimum wage. I mean, we saw big companies just recently push back so hard on paid sick leave and paid family leave that they were entirely left out of those um, of, of those laws when they were they were passed. I mean, it's cool. I, I honestly think that companies donating money is total bullshit. I mean, I think it makes sense for Felix to donate money and for us to donate money. But at the corporate level, there are real things that they could do to actually affect widespread change. I mean, even if you don't want to talk about lobbying for policies, I mean, just look in your own house, right? I mean, look at the percentage of people of color that are actually in management or at the executive level. It's like actually minuscule. And then like there's a story that the Daily Beast put out last night about LinkedIn, which um, they had like a con- an open. Con- Did you see this? Oh yeah. Oh, oh they're all hands. They, of course. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm like getting like a stress flashback to reading it. Um, you know, you, you mentioned LinkedIn, but wait, wait. So call, bring bring us up to speed on this story. So, before we oh, like a lot of companies, it. LinkedIn decided to have like a frank conversation about race and like to facilitate the conversation, let people chat anonymously with each other about the subject and it was just like a cesspool of racism like a shocking amount I, maybe not shocking to everyone but a disgusting amount of of really vile things being said under the cover of anonymity it's sort of more if you pull back more just sort of like takes the lid off the fact like these companies can send out their messages and they can tweet their tweets but like inside the house it's messy there like fix that yeah, I mean, let's go back to the Google walkouts, right? Like one of the things the tech has been grappling with for several years is the one. There is a strong perception that politicians, especially, like to spread that the employees of tech companies are somehow universally liberal for whatever definition of liberal those folks are using. Um, that is not supported by the examples of like political donations and campaign donations coming from the executives of those companies, coming from the employees of those companies, the the causes they lobby for, to your earlier point. It's also not supported by the absolute uninterrupted string of examples of all of the ways in which these are not somehow bastions of, you know, uh, harmony. <laughs> and I think the LinkedIn example is one, but Google at the corporate level stopped one of its diversity programs, um, or it was reported a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure the timeline when it stopped it, called Sojourn, which was supposed to be about fostering precisely these kinds of conversations and interventions, partly because it was perceived as being you know, too indulgent of people from underrepresented backgrounds. And one of the things that came up repeatedly in that LinkedIn story was, you know, 
folks insisting like, well, if it's a meritocracy, why do we have to care about race? And it's, it's sort of this inability within those organizations to grapple with, again, inequality of access and inequality of outcomes and that those things have a racial dimension and that having that conversation is not in and of itself racist, which is one of the other things that you hear these companies being accused of, which is like, if you have a diversity program, you are dis- discriminating against white people. And despite going back to the point about affirmative action, so many studies that show the people who are the primary benefits of affirmative action are in fact white women in you know, like the college infrastructure in the United States. Uh, Stacey Marie, thank you for joining us from Austin, Texas. My pleasure. Um, thank you to Jessamine Molly for producing this. And thank you to all of you guys for writing in on Slate Money at Slate.com. We love your emails. And we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.